Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. If you guys have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to the book of Acts, chapter 16, for our Bible study. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible and want to follow along, the ushers have them. They will give them to you as they come up and down the aisles. And, um, and let's do this. Let's, let's just pray, and then uh, we'll get into the message tonight. So, uh, Father, we again just begin here, Lord, and ask you, Father, that you would breathe upon the text of your truth. Lord, we know that your word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We know, Father, that uh, all things in us are naked and opened before your eyes. And Lord, we just ask that we would have an authentic time in your presence. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be uh, honest with ourselves. You'd help us to see ourselves as we are and as you see us, Lord. And we ultimately pray, Lord, that um, through the things that you speak and the things that you do in our lives, we would be, all of us, made completely whole and healthy spiritually and uh, emotionally and in every way, Lord, that we need to be. So uh, help us tonight, Lord, to hear from you, and we uh, commit the time to you and pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it has been three weeks since I uh, was up here sharing, and um, you guys, if you know me, you know I hate review. I hate going back and saying, like, last time we were together and then, you know, catching up. Um, However... Uh, last time we left off in the middle of a chapter and in the middle of a sermon. It was like right in the middle and it was like time to stop, you know. So um, I I don't want to go crazy reviewing everything that we talked about because I don't put preservatives in my messages. So I can't just give you the second half because it's gone. It's like the rotten manna that like just had worms in it in a jar and it's like it's all got to be new. So this is not part two of last time's message, um, but it is in the middle of the same chapter. And for the sake of of context, I just want to uh, remind you where we started last time. Um, And that was with a conversation that that took place between Jesus and his disciples uh, at the end of his time with them. So they had been walking with him, most of them, for three and a half years. And 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 there was kind of like this underlying frustration in a way, you know, there was like an excitement and an amazement and uh, glory, but there was this little frustration because Jesus says to them um, after three and a half years, he says, okay, guys, I'm leaving, but it's okay because where I'm going, you know, and you know the way and how to get there. And, and, and Thomas, who is usually the doubting one, was the frustrated one in that moment, and he, he just kind of snapped a little bit if you read it, kind of how it happened, and he was like, no, no. No. Okay. We have followed you. We have gone without sleep. We have turned left when we thought we should go right. We have done everything. But no, we do not know where you're going, and we don't know the way. We don't know. No, you cannot leave. And then Jesus kind of used that. I think he knew that they would respond that way, and he uh, began then to explain to them what was really going to happen. And that was that he, God in the flesh, was going to depart And that then he, God in the spirit, was going to come and indwell them. And and that God would no longer be outside of them where they would see him visibly, but they would not know him internally. But now he was going to come and he was going to be in them internally. And what Jesus was essentially saying to them is that the reason why you'll know the way and you know how to do this is because as I have been, 
alongside of you for these three and a half years, you are now going to be with me inside of you for the rest of your lives. And so it's not going to be a thing where you're just kind of guessing what's the right thing to do and just whatever wouldn't we do, let's do that. <laughs> because that's what it seems like it's been like for these past. No, no, it's going to be inside of you and you're going to walk with me. And so there was a promise that was given to them in that conversation that they would have the spirit of God dwelling in them, leading them in their path, in truth, in their thoughts, in their ways. He'd be shaping them. But then what that led into in the following chapter, that was John 14. In John 15, Jesus also dropped on them a responsibility, that it wasn't just that the Spirit was going to be given and that was the end of all things, but he gave them a responsibility in chapter 15, and that was that he said that now it's your responsibility to abide in the place where that connection and that communion continues. It's that, that parable that he told about the vine and the branches, where he said, I am the vine and you are the branches, and the branch can't bear fruit unless it's attached to the vine, and you can't bear fruit unless you're attached to me. And then he told them, remain in me. You need to abide in me. And so I wanted to kind of understand that a little bit. I looked up that word abide, and what, it, the, the words that kind of describe it are the words attach, connect, infuse, engage, and reciprocate. And if you kind of get the picture of a branch that's drawing from the vine. It's all of those things. It's connected. There's an attachment. There's an infusing of nourishment and life that comes up from the roots and through the vine into the branch. And then there's a, a reciprocation. There's feedback that's given. The branch, in some way, just like our bodies, have this way of, of communicating to our lungs and our brain of what they need in our heart. And there's this intricate intercommunication within our body, same thing in, with the vine and the branch, is that the, the, the branch will communicate in some way to the, back to the vine and say, hey, we need sap, we need nourishment, we need water, there's, there's a need here. And so there's this reciprocation, this relationship that exists between the vine and the branch. And, and Jesus said that that's on you to, to remain in that attachment, to not pull back or pull away or become independent or to live your life as though you can do it on your own. My spirit will indwell you, but you're to be in relationship with me so that there's leading and communication and nourishment and all the things that have to happen in your life. And when you do, the result is going to be that you are going to look more and more like Jesus. Your life, your actions, the things that you do, your priorities, the directions that you go, those things are going to look more like Jesus. And quite frankly, that was frustrating to the people that didn't have Jesus, you know, that didn't have him inside. Even the disciples, when Jesus wasn't inside, sometimes they were frustrated because it didn't make sense, the things that he did. And Jesus said that that's how it is. Everyone that has the spirit, sometimes their lives don't make sense because God is doing something that no one else can really understand, okay? Now, with that being said, we now join Paul the Apostle as he is on mission for Jesus. He senses this deep sense of calling inside of him that God has something for him to do. And now as he is moving around, we're seeing someone, an example of someone who is walking in the Spirit, walking with Jesus, and living out a life with the living Jesus inside of them, 
And we have an example of what that looks like for the Christian, for you and I, as Jesus still promises that he's going to be with us today. And so we join back with Paul in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, and we're going to see what happens when a door in his life is beginning to close and there's going to be a transition or a change. I don't know if you've ever been in a place where a door in your life is closing or a season of something that you're familiar with is coming to an end and now there's going to be a transition and a change and that can be a little bit off-putting to say it in a a mild and tame way. Uh, So here it is in verse 6. It says, Now when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, And were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Okay, now pause with me for just a second. Because what what we're essentially told here is that they have gone all the way through Asia, as the Bible would describe Asia in this time. We think of Asia in, in the modern breakdown of continental lines differently. But this is speaking of Asia Minor, where Paul is and has been. And as he has moved throughout those regions, now God is beginning to say to him, okay, no more in this region. Your work here in this part of the world is completed. And I don't want you to spend any more time sowing here. Now, he'll be back. He'll do other things in Asia in in the future. But for now, we're told that in some way, the Spirit communicates to him that there's a change coming. You are done here. Now, I find it interesting to think about this because, you know, at this point, if God says to you that you're done here, you really have two choices. You can either go backwards or you can go forwards. He could go back to home base and say, okay, our mission number two is done. Let's go back and see what God wants to do. Or you can go forward and say, let's see what God has next. Let's do something unfamiliar, which is Paul's way. It's Jesus's way. And so that's what Paul does It says in verse 7, it says, After they were come to Mycenae, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered, or again, allowed them not. Now, I'm not going to draw a map or put one up, but Mycenae essentially is the northernmost part of Asia Minor, and it's kind of a crossroads. It's a gateway from which you can either go north out of the borders of Asia and into what would kind of be considered, uh, you know, Eastern Europe or Russia. You would move north from there, which is what they initially wanted to do or thought they would do. Or from Mycenae, you can go west to Troas, which was a port city that would lead you then into Western Europe uh, as we know it today. And so he kind of has this choice. and, And I find it kind of comforting that he didn't know exactly what to do, and he kind of made a choice and and took a few steps in a direction, and then God said, no, no, this isn't the right way. You made a wrong choice, and the the details of how that was communicated isn't given to us exactly, but we get the idea that he went a little ways. There was some uh, restriction, and there was enough pressure pushing him not to go that way that they said, we're not sensing the spirit's momentum in this. We need to backtrack and and see what God really wants us to do. So they go back to Mycenae, okay, in verse 8. It says, and they passing by Mycenae, they come back to Mycenae, then they come to Troas. So they go west and they think, okay, maybe God's next move for us is to go into uh, Europe in this whole thing. And so it says in verse 9, now in Troas, it says that a vision appeared to Paul in the night 
And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him. That, that doesn't mean that he was on his knees praying like Paul was God. He was begging him. It's just language. Uh, asking him and saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. All right, now I just want you to notice something on the aside because it'll help understand Acts as we move forward, is that in verse 10, do you see the word we? It says, after this, uh, they had seen the vision, we endeavored. That's, a, that's different, okay? Because all the way up until now, it was they. And now all of a sudden, it's we. And so what does that mean? Probably what it means is that Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, joins Paul at this moment. That somehow in Troas, Paul meets Luke, and a bond, a connection is formed, and Luke decides that he's going to travel with Paul and Silas as they go on in their mission. Because from now on, it's going to be we, at least for a while, uh, that Luke is going to be with them. But I want to answer the question, what do you do when you're facing a crossroads? And that's kind of an interesting um, thing to, to really kind of think about it. Because it seems like Paul was a man who, who seemed to continually be at a crossroad. It seemed like he liked being at crossroads, that he would put himself in positions where, uh, you know, there was a shelf life on what he was doing, and that very soon he was going to have to make another choice or make another transition. And I find it interesting because that's kind of not normal, right? Like, I hate that. I don't, I don't like it when I have to make choices about what I'm going to do next. I like it when the path is super clear and, and the field is clear, and the terrain is flat, and I can just see, and there's just an open vision, and I, and I can kind of put it on autopilot, and I can just go. I think that's more of what's human. It's challenging to have to make decisions about directions that are going to shape and inform our future. I, I don't know about you, but to me, that's a little off-putting, all right? And, and it happens sometimes that we're on a road, and the road kind of ends, and we have to choose. And usually, when we have to choose, there's more than one choice. There's more than two choices. Usually, there's multiple choices. And we just want to make the best choice because we know that once we make a choice, we're going to be on that road for a while, and that road is going to lead somewhere. And the reason why we get anxious is because we're not super clear about where that road is going to lead, and we want to make the best choice. It's kind of like eating at a diner. Have you ever been to a diner with a 13-page menu, right? And, and you get one choice. You only can have one meal, and you want to make the best choice because you don't go out to eat all that often. You can't order more than one. I, uh, I was in a gas station um, probably just within the past couple of weeks, and there was a deli counter behind where the cashier's uh, station was, and I saw this truck driver come out. He was a truck driver because I saw him pull up in his big truck, and he comes in, and I hear him behind me, and he ordered two meals, and he was by himself, and he ordered two meals, and I, and I thought to myself as I heard him do that, I actually like, thought, I was like, can you do that? Like, can you actually order two? And so I, I kind of turned around and looked for a minute, and then I was like, no, you can't do that. No, <laughs> I saw the man, and I was like, that's not a good idea. You know, don't order two meals. You get one choice, right? And, and, and I want to make the best choice. I don't want to waste time in the whole thing, and so I, I, I do it. Now, Paul was there every day, 
and he wasn't afraid to put himself in that position. And, and what I gather from that is that Paul was either different than we are, or he was an example to us where we are. And I think it's probably the latter, okay? Because though Paul's life was constantly changing directions, there was one thing about Paul that was incredibly consistent, one thing that never changed, and that was that every single day he woke up and he surrendered his life and his will to the living Jesus who promised that he would shepherd him and lead him from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. And Paul received that invitation with faith, believing that Jesus would do what he said he was going to do. And in that, it was okay for him to constantly be coming to a place where he was going to have to make big choices in his life because he trusted that if he kept himself in an abiding relationship with Jesus, being led by his spirit, that God knew exactly what was going to happen and that he didn't have to worry about the details of what the future would look like because of the decisions that he made. Okay, so what do you do if you're in that position right now? You're facing something and you don't know what direction to go. Number one is don't stop moving. He did not for one moment stand idle and say, well, we're just going to stay here until God speaks. He said, no, we're going to go somewhere and see what happens. So he goes to Mycenae, tries to go this way. It doesn't work out, ends up in Troas. Don't be idle. Keep going. God leads those that are moving, okay? Now, submission plus action equals momentum. Watch what happens next because they end up in Troas, Paul has this vision of the man from Macedonia, discerns God wants us to go into Europe. We're going to cross the Aegean Sea now and watch what happens in verse 11. It says, therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothrace, forget that, and the next day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia and a colony where we were in the city and we were abiding for certain days. Okay, here's what I want you to catch in this, is that the journey from Troas across the Aegean Sea to Samothracia, okay, is a five-day journey normally by ship. I know that because he's going to make that journey again later on in the book of Acts. I forgot where. I think it's chapter 26 or something like that. And it takes five days. But they do in one day what normally would take five days because in the will of God, you have the momentum of the Spirit's breath behind you. Okay? And that's one of the ways that you can sense that you're in the will of God. They, they surrendered their life. They moved and kept going, and thus the momentum of the Spirit's drive was behind them, and they were able to accomplish more in a short period of time than they would have been able to accomplish in a normal or longer period of time had they been striving on their own. So they go to um, Philippi now, um, being moved by God. Now, the remainder of Paul's time in Philippi from this moment is going to be two interactions that happened, okay? But besides the fact that Paul was at a crossroads often in his life, there was another thing about Paul that is an example to us, that is impressing to me. And that is that Paul knew the art, and it is an art, and it is learned, 
of living an unscripted life. And that's hard to do, okay? When I was in high school, I was in uh, a couple of musicals, a couple of plays, and my senior year, that was another man at another time, you know, I was in a musical called South Pacific, and I had uh, the lead role, and I'm not saying that to, you know, boast or anything like that. I mean, was, this is like a backwoods high school, you know, not really that big of a deal. But, but it was a big deal to me then, you know, and I had this lead, and it was so much fun, and we had gone through the weekend, and done these shows, we did one Friday, we did one Saturday, we did one Sunday, and it was the third show, it was Sunday. And by then everybody's tired, no one slept, everyone's excited, and I, I missed a scene. I, I went off and I went into the dressing room and started changing, but I had had one more scene that I was supposed to be wearing the previous thing. And I remember being in the dressing room and I heard my music director scream down the hallway. He goes, Santa! Get on stage! And, and the, I mean, you can imagine the terror that, that's like, wait, I'm like literally standing there in my underwear and like a button down shirt, the mic cable like hanging off. And I'm like, oh no, like I missed a scene. Like this is, this is awful, right? So I, I kind of put things back on and I went out without shoes on. My shirt was untucked, you know, the whole thing. And I came in and here's why I'm sharing this, why it was so amazing. It's because the two other guys that were in the scene that I missed, the, the guys, it was Jay Tafone and Brandon Steinworth. Those were the, 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 the schoolmates of mine that were in it. They were in the scene. I was absent. And, and I blew the script. I wasn't there when I was supposed to be there. And, and they struck up a conversation for 90 seconds about baseball in the 1950s. And nobody in the audience, including my own mother, who had been at every show, realized or knew that I had missed the cue and that I, I wasn't there. Because they were so able to adapt when the script was broken. When what they thought was going to happen didn't happen, they didn't lose character. They didn't break character, but rather they continued and they improvised and nobody knew that anything didn't go the way that it was supposed to do. Okay, now why do I share that with you? Here's why. Because most of us live very scripted lives. We draw out a script of how our lives are going to go. We have a five-month script. We have a five-week script, a five-day script. We have a five-hour and a five-minute script. And, and they get more detailed as you go down. Sometimes I have like a five-bite script, all right? Like if I'm eating my dinner, right? And, and I, I'm like, I, I've got it and it's on the plate and I see it and I have made a plan subconsciously. And I know I do this because when my wife asks me for a bite, I get frustrated. And I don't know why I get frustrated. I don't even care all that much, but I'm just kind of like, ah, ah. it's because I have a plan. <laughs> and, and we are creatures of planning. We have a script that we go. And then what happens, all right, is that we create scripts, and then we get frustrated because reality is in the dressing room changing while we're still thinking that something else is supposed to be happening other than what is, all right? In my script, I see myself, I'm married. It's a stable person. They're put together. They're responsible. They, that we're growing as a family. It's a good thing. This is good. But then reality happens, 
And I find out that my spouse, especially maybe if I'm a woman, <laughs> I'm not, but maybe if I'm a woman, I find out that my spouse, that he's not even a man, he's a child. He doesn't even know how to dress himself. He says he doesn't want a mother, but then he's asking where his laundry is. And he wants everything done for him. Like, this is not what was in my script, in my vision, in my script. I had a job. I was respected. I'm climbing. I'm noticed. I'm networking. I'm rich. I'm on the golf course at age 25, and I'm the envy of everyone who's ever known me. But in reality, reality didn't get my script. And the reality of it is that I have a low position, and I get no respect. And my nickname on the job is something like warts or squirt. And I'm the coffee boy. And I'm like, Where, what happened? Because this was not my script. This is not what I wanted. Okay, here, listen. This is what happened to Paul. He had a vision. He saw a man from Macedonia who said, please come over here and help us. And if Paul was a person who had a script, okay, then nothing happened according to the script that Paul had, okay? Because when he gets to Macedonia, none of that takes place. There is no man. I mean, can you imagine he's there? He's like, we're going to go over there, guys. And when we get off the boat, there's going to be someone with a little sign that says Paul and company. And then they're going to take us to their villa right on the Aegean Sea. And they're going to tell us that they've been waiting for us. And they've gathered a crowd and there's a coliseum full of people. And we're going to hold evangelistic crusades every night. And they're going to put us up and the church is going to explode. And people are going to be healed and miracles are going to happen. That's not what happened. <laughs> the script did not come to pass the way that he thought. Now, when God gives a vision, all right, like a man from Macedonia who says, come over here and help us, or, or, or whatever it is that God has placed in you, a vision for your life, listen to me. A vision is a framework, not a script. It's not detailed. It's just God giving direction, not too many details. But here's the problem is that when the script that we have formulated doesn't happen the way that we think, we too quickly break character. As we think, well, God didn't do what I thought he was going to do. It didn't work out the way I felt like he promised me it was going to work out or that he showed me it was going to work out. So he must not be with me in the way that I thought that he was with me. Or maybe I made a wrong turn. So I'm just going to forget God for a little while and I'm going to take my life back into my own hands. And I'm going to do it my way because God apparently forgot to show up. See, no, no, no. Paul did not break character when it didn't go the way that he thought it was going to go. Well, how did it go for Paul? Watch this. In verse 12, it says that they sailed to Philippi, the chief city of that part of Macedonia, the colony, and they were in that city. They were abiding certain days. So they're there for a little while. Doesn't tell us how many, but there's no man. He doesn't show up. And so then on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and we spoke to the women which resorted thither. Now, usually Paul would go into a synagogue but if there was a city where there was no synagogue, then if there were any Jews, they would go to a river, that was their place, and they would gather there and pray. So Paul thought, there's no synagogue, let's go to the river, let's see if anyone shows up. Maybe the man from Macedonia is down there. So they go there, no man, it's all women. So he's like, Ugh. anybody here identify as a man from Macedonia? Like, you know, this isn't working out, like what's going on? 
Well, now, verse 14, it says that a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things that were spoken by Paul. And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, then come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So not a man, but a woman is the first one who's touched by the words that Paul is sharing. And then she comes up to Paul and she says, Hey, where are you guys staying? And Paul's like, I'm staying with a man. Who? Well, I, I haven't met him yet, but I'm going to meet him. Because God showed me that there's a man from Macedonia, and he's the one. And she's like, well, maybe until you meet that man, maybe you want to come and stay at my house. He's like, well, stay with a woman, I, appearance of evil. I don't know. This probably isn't a great idea. And she's like, no, no, no. You've got to just come stay with us. You're I don't know where you're sleeping, but you don't smell that great. Come to, our, come to my house. You know? so, so it says that she constrained. They, she, she pled with, with him to stay. And so finally he's like, oh, you know, listen, don't, don't bring your script to God. All right, and say, okay, this is how it's all going to work out because it's not going to happen the way that you're script. But don't break character. You keep being who God called you to be. You keep doing what God called you to do, and you trust him with the details. Do you know that Paul's never going to meet this man from Macedonia? But we are going to find out who he is at the end of our study uh, tonight, though um, he does not have a specific name. Okay, so now Paul begins his ministry officially in Philippi, and it consists of these two interactions. One is with a demon-possessed woman, woman or girl, and the second is with a Roman corrections officer uh, that he meets under not-so-pleasant conditions. Let's look at the demon-possessed girl in verse 16. It says that it came to pass as we went to prayer that a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination, which means she's a psychic, She's a soothsayer, she's a spiritist, she's a witch in some form or fashion. So she has the spirit of divination, she's got a demon. And she besought her master, or which brought, I'm sorry, her master's much gain by soothsaying. So there's people that have seized uh, um, leverage over her abilities, and they have found a way to use her, prostitute her abilities to gain wealth for themselves. And it says that the same followed Paul and us, and, and she cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. Now, at first glance, you would, you would think about this, and you'd be like, oh, this is good. You know, here's this demon-possessed woman who's being exploited by rich people in the city, and she recognizes that Paul is preaching truth and a God who is more powerful than her masters or what's driving her inside of her. And you would think, well, this is good. This is good because she may come to Christ. And it's good because she's also giving free advertising. She's telling everybody that is near them that, that Jesus or that they, they proclaiming the truth about the Most High God. But watch this, verse 18. It says, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Okay, now I, I, I'm so intrigued by this, where it says that Paul was grieved over the proclamation that this psychic is making concerning his message. 
And I ask myself the question is, what grieved him about this thing? And my first snap judgment or reaction is that, you know, well, Paul was grieved because he doesn't want, uh, God doesn't want publicity from the dark side. He, he doesn't want the devil advertising Jesus in some way and that that would grieve Paul. But I don't think that's why Paul was grieved. And the reason I don't think that is because Paul's going to write later to the same church, the Philippian church, and say to them, I don't care who preaches the gospel. I don't care why anyone preaches the gospel. I rejoice when the gospel is preached. So I don't think Paul was grieved because of what this woman was saying or because of who she was. So my second judgment on why he's grieved is because perhaps maybe her reputation as a witch and whatever else she is and has been is actually a hindrance to the integrity of the message that Paul is trying to bring forth. You know, and so because of her reputation, she's actually doing more harm than good. But then I think that's probably not the reason because when you look at Jesus, he seemed to go out of his way to associate with people that would bring his reputation down. He was always doing that. And so I don't think that, I, I think that he does that on purpose so that none of us will ever think that we're going to ruin Jesus's rap, <laughs> you know, uh, by, by, by who we were or who we are. He goes out of his way to be around people like this. So I don't think that's why Paul was grieved. So, so then, then I think that um, maybe, maybe he was grieved because it was a distraction, okay, that, that she's distracting from the mission in some way. She's hindering by what she's doing. But then, then I think, I never see Jesus ever casting a demon out of a person because it's inconvenient for him for them to have a demon, okay? Jesus was never like, you know what? You're really making this hard for me, so I'm just going to cast a demon out of you so that my life can be easier. I don't think that's why Paul was grieved. This was not because she was hindering what they were trying to do. Why was Paul grieved? I believe the answer, and it says it twice in this passage, is because of this little word masters that surrounds this woman's condition. That she brought her masters much gain by her soothsaying. And I believe that when Paul looked at this woman, maybe at first he was like, she's weird. She has I don't want to say things that maybe, she's crazy, you know, this lady. But then after a little bit, he, he saw that every time she's around, he's there over there, he's there over there, and that guy's there over there. And he saw this woman, and he, he saw through the condition of what she was doing and what she was being, and inside there, he saw the pain and the torment that lied just beneath the surface of her eccentricity. He saw the control that she was under from those that were using her to profit from the torment of a demon that was at work inside of her. And I believe that the grief that Paul's experiencing over this woman was a combination of the empathy that he felt for her, feeling the condition that she was in, and then the sympathy of putting himself in her shoes and thinking, man, I know what it's like to be controlled by something that I don't understand and to be serving people that don't care about me, that I'm being prostituted to serve their purposes. I understand what that feels like. And that moved him with compassion to do something about it. 
Okay, do you understand the difference between those three things? Empathy is being able to feel what someone else is feeling. Sympathy is being able to put yourself in their shoes and experience it for a minute. And compassion is then doing something about it. Like taking action because of what someone else is going through that, that's making their life miserable. And you care enough about them that you're going to do something about it. And I think that was the grief that motivated Paul to cast the demon out of this woman. He knew that he had what she needed and he was moved enough by Jesus to bring that to her so that she could then be set free. What started off as her power, her psychic abilities, what she opened herself up to that then became something, what started as her power became her prison, and Paul sets her free. He casts a demon out of this woman. Now, here's the irony. Watch what happens after Paul casts a demon out of her. Verse 19, it says that when her masters saw that the hope of their gains were gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. And they brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Totally motivated by uh, loss, by covetousness, by greed. They know nothing about uh, Jesus or even what they're proclaiming. And the multitude then rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded to beat them. So rip off their robes and beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, the jailer, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison, the inner prison, the dungeon, and made their feet fast in the stock. So he binds them completely into this thing. Isn't it, isn't it kind of ironic here that Paul and Silas set someone free, and the result is that they're now put in prison. That's what they get. Like, this is what I get for, for this whole thing. Only that's not what's really happening here. Because the reality is, you cannot imprison someone who is spiritually free. It seems like they're being imprisoned. It looks like they're being imprisoned. But these men are not in prison. Okay, watch what happens in verse 25. It says, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and they sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. Now, this is such an amazing passage. It's kind of a famous passage. You know, they're, they're, they're beaten, they're bloody, they're weary, they're naked, they're cold, they're bound, their feet in these stocks, these chains, whatever they are. They're in this inner dungeon and, and they, they just start to sing and they start to pray because that's what there is to do in that moment when there's nothing else to do and they're awake and they can't sleep. And so they just begin to sing. And all of a sudden, now there's this, earthquake and their chains break off and the prison doors open and not just their chains, but everyone in the entire prison, their chains open in this whole thing. Now, I've always heard this passage taught and I've always kind of seen it this way myself, that when you are in prison, what do you do? 
What's the Christian answer? You, you pray and sing praises. And, and that, then, is the way out of the prison. Okay, you're in prison, so just give thanks. That's not, I don't think that's right at all. Why? Here's why. Because Paul and Silas, in their minds, they're not in prison. They're subject to a higher freedom. They have been set free by Jesus. They're being shepherded and held and cared for by Jesus. They belong to Jesus. There is a freedom that they possess that's stronger than any prison that a man can put them into. And freedom comes to them in the prison because they brought freedom in. They were already free when they came in, and the situation became a reflection of their condition. They were already free, thus the freedom followed them in. Okay, now some of you right now in this room, you feel like you're in a prison. In your marriage, it's more like a prison than a marriage. In your job, in your stage of life, in your mindset, in your thoughts and thinking, maybe in your habits or your lifestyle. Listen to me. If you feel, I know this is profound. You might even want to write it down. If you feel like you're in a prison, it's because you're not free. Let me say it again. If you feel like you're in a prison right now, it's because you're not free. Jesus said that if you continue in my word, you will know the truth. You'll be my disciples. And he said, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you what? Free. Then he said, one breath later, he said, and who the son sets free is free indeed. Which means that when Jesus sets you free, it's a different kind of freedom. It's a freedom on another level. It's a freedom that is absolute. It is not a freedom that can be taken from you by your situation or by your conditions. When you're free indeed, you cannot be imprisoned. And when you put a free person in any situation, what you have is a free person in that situation. That's what you end up with. So Paul and Silas did not sing and pray so that they could get let out of the prison. They sang and prayed because they were already free even though they were in the prison, okay? The chains that they were bound with didn't break. The doors didn't open because they were singing and praying. They broke because they were already free and the freedom they had was stronger than the chains that were holding them. Now, how do I know that this is true and that I'm not just trying to sound powerful and profound and spiritual in all this? Here's how I know. Watch what happens after this, in verse 27. It says that the keeper of the prison Awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. Now, the reason for that is because if you were a CO in Rome and whom you were guarding escaped, you would die. And so he thought, well, the cruelty that I'm going to receive at the hand of my magistrates is much worse than me just killing myself, so I'm just going to lean on my sword right now and die that way because it's better. But, verse 28 says, Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm for we are all here. 
Nobody ran. Paul's like, we didn't go. We had the opportunity. The chains broke off. The doors opened. The way was made clear. And they were like, what do you want to do? It's like, I'm comfortable. Are you good? I'm good. Well, let's just hang out. And everybody else in the prison, they had been hearing these songs. The peace of God, the freedom of God was there. And they're just like, yeah, let's just, this is good. Let's, let's stay. This is, this is a sweet spot to stay right here. Listen, if, if Paul felt like he was bound and he was praying and singing so that somehow God would liberate them from this prison, he would have left. He wasn't in prison. He was in the hand of God in a Roman jail cell experiencing Jesus in a real and living way in that moment in the strength of the freedom that, that he, he, he could have. Now, here's the irony of it. Did you notice it in verse 27? That the, the CO, the keeper of the prison, he's not free. He's the only one legally free in the entire scene. But yet he's not free because he knows that he's bound by his contract and commitment to the magistrates and that he's about to experience cruelty on a level that he knows he doesn't want to experience, wherein death is a better option than to go through what he's going to go through. He's not free. He saw in this moment his slavery in a way that he never had realized ever before. Watch this, verse 29. It says that he called for a light and he sprang in and he came trembling and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your house. They preached the gospel. Do you remember the man from Macedonia? I don't think it was the CO, by the way. But, but it says that when they, they, they saw the vision of the man, it says that they assuredly gathered, which meant that they, they were very confident internally that God wanted them to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel. That's what it says back over at the beginning of, of the segment. They went, God wants us to go there and preach the gospel. That's what they do to this man. They preach the gospel. They preach freedom and salvation through faith in Jesus. Because this man in that moment recognized the strength of the chains that were holding him. This free man this Roman citizen, this Roman soldier, this Roman CEO that was technically free was not really free. And he realized the strength of those chains in the moment that he saw the freedom that could come through Jesus and Paul and Silas and through the things that they were singing. And he said, I need to know the freedom that you have. What must I do to be saved? And they preached the gospel for him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your household. And he says that you will then be saved. Okay? Now watch this beautiful in verse 33. It says that he took them, the CO took them the same hour of the night and he washed their stripes and was himself baptized, he and all his straightway. Do you see the beauty in that? Here you see this, this CO, he washes their wounds and then they in turn turn around and they wash his whole life. They baptize him in the waters of salvation, the waters of baptism. And you see this, this amazing intimacy that took place between the, these, these Christians that have just been beaten and this CO now who realizes that he himself is bound and now free in Jesus and there's this fellowship that happens. Sunday afternoon, we went to this um, family fishing day 
that was held about a mile from here. Just We took the kids, and they were throwing, throwing lines. And uh, one of the guys that was running it comes to this church. His name is Bruce Huddling. And uh, he was a CO. He's retired now. And, and so we got chatting. He was there, and he was helping the kids, putting worms on the things. And he said, he goes, Nick, he goes, I got involved in a, in a, a Bible study. And uh, he said, I've never done that before. He's been, been a Christian for 10 years. I've never gone to a Bible study. He says, but it's me and four ex-convicts. And he goes, I, I was a CO. He goes, I hated these men. I hated them. I despised them. I loathed them with every fiber of my being. And he says, now to be in a place where I love these men, and they're actually doing more for me than I could ever do for them. And only Jesus, only Jesus could do that. And just listening to, that's, that's what's going on here. That's the freedom that Jesus brings. That's the kind of fellowship and communion that happens. And it says that when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them. So now he feeds them and he rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. He came to know the freedom that only Jesus could bring. Now, just in case, just in case you're tempted for one moment to think that Paul and Silas and their singing and this whole episode, just in case you're tempted to think that this was just like, like um, disingenuous in any way, that even if you just think, well, this is just them doing what they, they knew was right, even though they weren't, didn't really want to do it. They were, just, they were just kind of like going, just in case you would think that this was not real, this freedom that they had. Watch what happens. I'm just going to read the closing verses of the chapter, and then I'm going to talk to you for a moment. It says that when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told the saying to Paul, Hey, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart. Go in peace. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans. We didn't get a fair trial. And they've cast us into prison. And now, do they want to thrust us out privately? No. 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 You let them come themselves and fetch us out. So, so not only did God open the door and say, okay, go, you're free. And they were like, no, we're good. We're already free. Now Rome comes and Rome says, go, you're free. And he's like, nope, nope, staying right here. Let them come and own that what they did was not, not right. Let them fetch us out. And so the sergeants told these words to the magistrates and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and they besought them. They begged them. So here are these guys that beat them and now beg them. And they brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And so they went out of the prison and they entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren and comforted them, they departed. Okay, now this passage, this famous passage in Acts chapter 16, is not about telling you how to get out of prison. It's about telling you how to find a greater freedom than any prison can take from you. That's what this passage is all about. That's why it's here. Who was the man from Macedonia that said, come over here and help us? There was a plea in his request in the vision. Do you know who the man was? It was the demon-possessed girl. It was the girl who was being used. It was the man who was a CEO and had freedom and, and he had promise. 
and he was climbing, he was going somewhere, he had a career in front of him. But yet he was bound, even in his freedom, he didn't know the true freedom that lasted. It was every person that needs to know the freedom that only can come through Jesus. The man from Macedonia is a humanity that desperately needs to be set free in the way that only Jesus can set a person free. That's who the man was. The man from Macedonia is you and I, apart from Jesus Christ. Do you know that you are a slave to whoever you yield your power to? If there's a young woman, a young actress, a young singer, a young model, and and she knows she has talent, and she has hopes and dreams for her future, and she moves to a big city like New York or L.A., and and just hopes, she's got hope upon hope that something something beautiful is going to come out of her life. And she goes to a talent agency or two and goes on a few auditions and she's noticed by someone who has power. And they come and they say, we see something in you. There's something that could, we could put what you have in front of the eyes of the whole world and it could be huge. Just sign right here. And she yields her power into the control of those that have the ability to do something with it. And what she just took in as the hope and the break that she's been waiting for was the first link in a chain of slavery that she's forging for herself. The young athlete that's recognized for his ability and his strength and his talent, and he's picked up by an army, by a military, or even by a Roman band and says, hey, we're going to give you an entry-level position, but you can go as far as you want to go but you just have to do what we tell you to do. And as long as no one ever gets free on your watch, as long as no one ever escapes the prison while your shift is in in motion, you'll be just fine. You can keep going. But if, if you ever fail... It might not work, but don't worry about that. We're going to take you places, man. We're going to get you right into Rome itself. You just have to yield your power, your ability to us, and it will happen. It's going to happen to you. I watched a while ago, I watched a documentary on Jim Croce. You guys know who Jim Croce is? You know, Don't Mess Around with Jim, uh, Time in a Bottle, like all those amazing songs, just amazing musician, guitarist, unbelievable. And I used to, I, I still love listening to Jim Croce. When his songs come on, I just find myself like singing them. is so powerful. I watched a documentary on his life. It was the saddest thing. He lived in poverty. He lived in the shack. His wife, and, he, and then he had a daughter, and he was gone like nine to 11 months out of the year. And the record companies took everything from him. He never had two dimes to rub together because he sold his soul to the people that had power to put his music in front of us and then ended up dying in a plane crash while he was traveling to a gig. He gave his whole entire life and got nothing. See, that's, that's what happens in this world. And you can apply it to any and every human being because all of us have been given something by God. And at some point, we yield that power to someone or to something that promises that if we, then we will get. And as the power that we give them strengthens them, they take more and they proportionately use us for the means of their gain, the more powerful that they become. And you know what? Everyone does it. Everyone does it. You and I do it. It's 
the fallenness of humanity. Do you ever notice that dictators become, I mean, revolutionaries become dictators? I mean, you have like this horrible government and this revolutionary rises up and he's like, we're throw your freedom and buy Twitter and where are you gonna, you know, and then they become like, yeah, we have a savior, a, a revolutionary, it's, it's freedom. And then next thing you know, that guy's the dictator. And, and that's the cycle, this is what happens because that's what human beings do. Until you come to a whole new type of power. In John chapter 13, let me just read you a, a little piece of this. John 13, verse 1. It says, It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And it says that the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And it says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew at this moment that all power in all of the universe had been given to him. And it says he also knew that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. Now just put yourself in that position for one minute. What would you do tomorrow if you had all power? That means you could do anything you want. You have all power. What would you do tomorrow? Well, Jesus comes this moment. He now has all power. And I want you to see what he does with all power. We're not going to read it. But knowing that, that's the context. It says that he took off his robe. He stripped down to where he was just barely covered. He poured water into a basin in the presence of a silent group of his disciples. He got down on his hands and knees, and one by one, he began to wash their feet and then wipe them off with the little piece of clothing that he still had around his waist. And in utter silence, he moved from person to person to person cleansing away the filth that they had gathered on their feet. There's a little interaction with Peter that you can read on your own. And when it says that he was finished, it says that he stood up, he put back on his clothes, he sat down, and in stunned silence, they looked at him as he said to them, he said, do you understand what I just did? And he knew that they didn't understand anything of what he just did. He actually says to them, do you understand what I've done for you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Do you know what Jesus does with all power? He uses his power to bring free indeed. He uses his power to set people free, to give them true freedom. That's what he does. And when you give your life to Jesus, you're surrendering your power to him. You're trusting him with the control of your life. And what you're doing then is you're putting your talent, your ability, your desires, the purpose that he formed within you back into the hands of the one who formed it, where then it can find its intention. And when you give your life to Jesus, 
His desire is not to control you and use you for his selfish will, but rather to free you and to show you that what you are longing for is what you were created for. And when you put the fullness of your trust in him, that's when you're free. And there's nothing else to do at that point but to give it away. Who's the man from Macedonia? You are. What does he need? Jesus. Freedom. And why does Paul care? You know why? Because if freedom in Jesus is a thing, then it's everything. There's nothing else to live for. And he gave his life to give away what had been freely given to him. I think there's some of you that are here tonight, and you know, even, even if you're saved, you know that the condition of your soul, it's not truly free. You're not totally free. You're maybe wearing the clothing of freedom, but you know inside that your soul is still bound up in things. I think the reason for that is, is one of, probably one of two things. It's, it's either that you haven't trusted Jesus fully, you say that you do, but you put your trust really in the people or the system or whatever it is that, that, that you really trust in, and you haven't really trusted him completely, and that keeps you bound. Or the other thing is that you haven't surrendered really to Jesus. You've trusted Moses. Okay, well, Jesus is just another taskmaster. Okay, if I do, if I do everything perfectly, if I if I keep a standard that's impossible for me to keep, then Jesus will keep me free and help me. But if I can't, then, then, then he, and that's not Jesus, that's Moses. See, when Jesus sets you free, it's free. It means, it means that you're still free even if you didn't pray today. You're still free even if, even if you're in a bad mood or you're having a bad season or you're not handling a trial correctly or if you flipped out at somebody you're still, you're still free. You don't, oh gosh, I have to work for like a week to get back into his graces and in his presence. If that's Jesus, then he's just like everybody else. But the one who has all power sets you free. It's a deep freedom. It's a true freedom that cannot be bound. It can't be taken from you. It begins in the place where we truly say to him, Jesus, I trust you with my life. I trust you with my life. I lean every part of my life upon you. And he's made the way, he's paved, he's opened the door for that to happen. And there's not one of us in here that can experience that. May we walk and know the freedom that he gives to us. Father, we just thank you tonight for who you are, for what you provided through your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would help us to not only know it, and not only even just to live it, but to breathe in it, to grow in it, to live in it, to walk in it. Oh, Lord, that we would know you, that we would authentically, truly walk with you and know you. Help us, Lord. I pray for every soul that is here within the sound of my voice right now. Oh, Jesus, that you would show yourself to be the Savior, the liberator, the truth teller, the one that with all power can hold our lives faithfully and shepherd us and move in us. So teach us, Lord. Help us. Lead us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. 
We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.